Hi everyone, it's Andrew Parsons. Today uh, will be the first of hopefully a number of podcasts where I speak with the leaders of REITs and maybe some interesting real estate characters as well. But today it's Asura and it's uh, quite an opportune time to be speaking with a company given these COVID-19 days. Asura is a London Stock Exchange listed uh, uh, owner of high quality, sustainable medical centres that provide healthcare services to local communities across the United Kingdom. Now, we first came across this story many years ago when the previous CFO of British Land became Asura's CEO. That piqued our interest because it was unusual to see somebody leave such a large, diverse uh, uh, company to focus uh, his attention on a specialist vehicle in which he didn't seem to have any particular prior uh, involvement. So we were fascinated to learn what drew Graham Roberts to become the CEO of Asura. Now, unfortunately, not long after we got to know the story well, Graham passed and uh, a great loss and a great man. But he certainly passed on uh, a great platform uh, to a person who'd been working with him uh, in developing the platform into what it is today. So it was a great pleasure that we started our first uh, podcast uh, with Asura and the new CEO or the, the, the current CEO, Jonathan Murphy. All right, we're right. Can you hear each other? Yeah. Hi, Hi Jonathan. Whilst obviously technology is assisted in communicating far more effectively, there's still some technical uh, issues uh, that mean it's not always going to go smoothly. And that's certainly the case when you're trying to talk to people halfway around the world. Oh, no, just bear with us. I'm not getting any... Do you want to call him on the phone? I, 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 think, it's, I think it's my headphones are disconnecting. Right. Is, that, is that connected again? Oh, Right, it's Fantastic. working. You can you can hear me now. You can hear us, which yeah, I must have just been maybe. Uh, I think my headphones, the Bluetooth, just disconnected, and that's all it was. Don't, don't, Jonathan. The great thing about technology is you never take responsibility. You just say it was the system, <laughs> and that your technical expertise uh, managed to get you uh, through the problem. So, well done, and thanks to Jared. Yes, uh, here on my end, who's who's helping. He's been definitely trying to work out what was been going wrong. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But look, really appreciate um, you joining us. And I guess just some further background, uh, you know, this is, again, you know, we've all spent a lot of time at home, I'm sure, yourself, listening to podcasts and just thought it's a great way, in fact. It's a really effective way to communicate. And so I thought we'd just give it a try and just see how it went. But look, in terms of my style, um, you know, if you think about Louis Thoreau and uh, Michael Parkinson, you know, yeah. charming, disarming, and urbane. Well, I'm Les Patterson, okay? <laughs> sorry, sorry, Sir Les Patterson. Yeah. Uh, or Norman Gunston, who you may not be as familiar with. But um, anyway, look, we'll, 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 we'll see how we go. But look, you know, first of all, uh, you know, how are you doing? How, how are you and the team at uh, Asura going? Yeah, no, I mean we're in a in a very fortunate position, as you know. I mean, business is in is in is in great place, uh, in great shape. But um, everyone's adapted really well. I mean, working from home is different for everybody, isn't it? So I don't know I don't know where you are in terms of your stage of lockdown. Whether you've been let out a little bit more, 
Um, but we had you know, so-called Independence Day on Saturday where the pubs and restaurants <laughs> opened. Yes. Um, yes. And literally before that, we've been in total lockdown. So we, you know, everyone's working from home. No one's visiting the sites. Um, yeah. No one's in the office. Uh, but it's working fine. You know, we've we've adapted. The team have adapted. Um, we've been, um, you know, using technology, um, you know, yeah. to connect. And and really, it's it's gone much better than we could have hoped for. So you know, it's it's been it's, it's been fine. The only real challenge is 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 people with young kids because the schools are closed. Right. So there's an awful lot of people yeah. trying to juggle work and homeschooling at the same time, which is, yeah. frankly, yeah. almost impossible. I just decided to adopt my children out, um, so uh, I haven't had any problems on that front. <laughs> well, I'm quite lucky because mine are a little bit older, so they're quite they're, yes. qu they're quite self-sufficient, and I've been very lucky that my school our schools have been fantastic in terms of right. setting them work every day. So they've had mm. stuff to do every day. So I've been really, you know, not 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 greatly disturbed by it all. So no, no, very very fortunate. Well, that's great, but I mean, uh, you know, from our side of the planet. Um, you know, it does seem that you know, the UK got off a slow start and then it all seemed to go downhill from, from there. So it just seems like it's been a bit more um, dramatic over there. I mean, obviously, the, the politicians here really put the fear of God into people early and, and we had some mm. success in, in flattening the curve. But I think what we're learning as of today is that uh, this is going to be a very challenging um, period because they've actually just closed a couple of the state borders here again. Oh, right. between, yeah, between New South Wales and Victoria, so two of our biggest states. So, um, you know, we were all, you know, you could sense that the politicians were trying to contain themselves, but uh, they've just had a bit of a rude awakening that this is far from uh, far from uh, a sorted out issue. But um, anyway, looks, well, I, yeah, I, th I thought you were in a much. I thought you were doing much better than we were. So from from what oh, you're no, no, we, in terms in terms of the numbers, we are. There's no question. Yeah. But in terms of you know, um, the the fact that I think they had the biggest day in Victoria today in right. terms of new cases and it's coming through community spread, et cetera. So last week we were sort of down to one or two cases and like yeah, today it was, I think, 107. So mm. this is the problem that, you know, that we're seeing obviously in the southern parts of the US, et cetera, that um, it's just so easy for this thing to to, to, to rear its ugly head again. And, yeah. Um, Anyway, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But, uh, you know, look, this might go 15 minutes, it might go 30, and, and if we're having a great time, who knows, I'll go and grab a beer and we'll, we'll talk about it. You, <laughs> I don't know. I'll go have another coffee. <laughs> okay, fine. Have, a, have a, an Irish coffee maybe. But um, uh, so, look, let's, let's talk about Asura. Uh, but before we do, I, I do want to get a sense of, of your background because, looking quickly and not knowing too much about it, but it looks like you sort of had a, a, some background in funds management, IT, and was it pubs with Spirit? Yes. Yeah, yeah, pubs. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, yep. so what, what was the, what, what sort of led you to Asura? Yeah, so, I mean, it wasn't a normal uh, property background by any stretch of the imagination. So I was finance background um, and I worked, um, as you say, was a worked in strategy for pubs. So that was looking at, you know, the type of offer that we were giving to the customers so very much a sort of marketing and almost consumer focused one. But um, I mean, the great thing about pubs is it's that easy to relate to. Um, mm -hmm. So we all we all understand how you know what what makes business work. So that was that was a really you know it was a fun experience. Um, and actually, one thing we weren't very good at in the pub business was the property side. Um, mm -hmm. We did a terrible deal 
um, not I didn't lead on it. I hastened to add with British Land, and they got a, they got an excellent transaction out of us because we didn't really understand the value of our of our property. So um, the pubs pubs has got bought out. So then you know I was looking for for another opportunity, and I ended up in in fund management, um, and it was a, a business that focused predominantly on on property. So um, so I, I that's how my sort of entrance into the property world came about. Um, property funds is, is great. You learn all the fundamentals of the underlying asset classes. We did loads of different asset classes. We did student, mm. we did agricultural land, we did ground rents, we did resi. We were sort of a mm. jack of all trades. Um, but you are, as a fund manager, you're a little bit, little bit removed. Um, and the opportunity came up uh, at Assura. So, you know, the late Graham Roberts, who you who you met, who you may remember, uh, he was the chief executive at the time. Yeah, and and he right. he basically sold me that you know, okay, fund management is interesting, and you, you learn about the properties, but actually being in a property business is much more real. You know, it's your business; you're totally involved. And and he really sold to me that like, that was a better better way to to further my career. And also the opportunity. So at that point, Ashura was really not in a great place, you know, struggling. It was a bit of a turnaround. Uh, the business had almost gone bust, actually, due to a, a, a toxic derivative, which almost brought the business down. Um, and he said, look, this business has got fantastic potential. I'm coming in. We've changed all the board. It's a clean start. How do you fancy joining me on that journey? And, and you know, it was a it was a really convincing and compelling vision. So I was really happy to, to, to saddle up and, and, and join him on that, on that, on that journey. And you, I think you met us pretty early on actually. Um, so you, you, you know, familiar with, you know, how we had to sort of reestablish the business because people didn't, didn't have a good reputation. The business didn't have a good reputation with investors. Um, and that's how we, that's how we started out. So, so, just going back though, in terms of that background, and it was interesting you mentioned a deal that you did with um, British Land. Yeah. Just curious, what was the was there a sort of a defining um, moment in your career or, or an experience that shaped you? Or, I mean, did you did you can you look back at that deal? Could you look back at it not long after and realise, hey, we'd been duped by property guys, <laughs> or or was this only become apparent? Much, much later. No, I think it's more gradual than that. I, I don't. I, I don't think it was more. It was more afterwards. In fact, it was more when I met Graham, and he, right. he, he was on the other side of the deal. So uh, right. he, he was the one that sort of lift, opened my eyes a bit and told me quite what a great yeah. deal it was for British Land. Um, so no, it was yeah. more gradual than that. But I think I think what I you know what I found on the when I was doing the property fund management side is you know there were, there were a lot of um, you know. The, the, the sort of intellectual challenge of bringing it all together, structuring it, getting the tax right, you know, finding the investors, all that side of things was 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 really interesting. But I was sort of quite removed from the underlying asset, and that's why you know Assure was a much more you know hands-on opportunity to get really get involved in the business. So I've, I've got the sun you know shining on uh, uh, glinting off the window opposite right into my face, unfortunately. Um, so, <laughs> But at least, at least the so, sun. So, well, that's interesting. That gives me great context. I mean, yeah, good, good. Apparently, it's been a wonderful summer there. But um, we'll, 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 we'll move on from that for a moment. But, but I didn't appreciate that was where you met Graham, and 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 what people probably don't realise is you mentioned Graham. He was the CFO at British Land. That's right. And yes. so you met him through your transaction when you were at yep. Spirit. Yeah. Ah, well, there you go. So that that's the connection. And then, of course, you sold a business that was had something of a toxic past. And um, you asked to go to Warrington. I mean, it's yeah. sort of a not the most, you know, I don't know if too many people know Warrington, but it's possibly in some respects seen its 
it's better days. I, I, um, uh, it's for, for those people who don't know, it's what two two and a half hours north of London by yep, by yep, train. Yeah. Um, and four hours when the new high speed rail starts. Um, <laughs> and then, and somewhere between Liverpool and Manchester. Um, so it's a it is certainly a, a different part of the world to, yeah. to base a business. And, yes. and I presume that the history of that was. Um, the, the, the origins were the, the people that started the business many years ago. That's right. So they, they originally founded the, the business in, in Warrington. I mean, it is an un, it's an unusual location. You're right. So um, in terms of you know, somewhere to, to, to place a really large you know, national business, it's not where you might think of first off. Um, but you know, as you say, it's halfway between Manchester and Liverpool. The other thing that you, don't really, you won't realise is it's actually, but it's also halfway up the UK. So right. it doesn't feel like it because obviously it's north of London and everyone thinks London's the centre. Um, but actually, yeah. we are halfway up. So as from, from, so, from somewhere to base a national business, it's actually it actually right. makes a lot of sense. Um, and it's got so fantastic somebody, connections. Somebody right. Into London. So sorry, you've got good, got good connections into London. Um, it's yeah. got good yeah. – you can draw on both cities. So you can draw on Liverpool, you can draw on Manchester um, and both mm. universities and both cities for, for, for talent. Um, and it's um, you know, and, it, and it's a great place. It also happens to be you know a proud rugby league town, which is um, you know something that's uh, it's close to me. So Andrew Johns played for uh, the Warrington Wolves in, in his in his swan song. So yeah, it's so. I went. I was lucky, and I, when I went up there, I did go to a game. And uh, as they're locally known, I know the Wolves are the official title, but otherwise right. known as the Wires. That's right. The history of the town in terms of being a leader of wire manufacturing. That's right. Day, right. Yeah. That's and right. So honestly, it was a. A great experience. Everybody, everybody loves English football, and I get that. Um, but I honestly think anybody who gets the chance to go and see a rugby league game mm. up in the north, it's a real cultural experience, and I, I enjoyed it um, thoroughly. But um, yes, we could talk about that another time, perhaps. But um, <laughs> uh, dear, so on to Assura. Maybe if you could just let our uh, audience know. What is Asura? What what exactly is the is the platform, and 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 you know how would you describe it to you know your your parents or your uh, kids' friends' parents, and when they're yeah. asked, so what what is Asura? Yeah, I mean, and the simplest thing is you know we're, we're investor and developer of medical properties, so we are you know building uh, GP surgeries, but it's really um, so it's about addressing that that healthcare healthcare need through the buildings, but it's it's about finding that long-term secure underlying cash flow. That's what it's all about. So ultimately, we're a property business, um, but really it's all about generating you know, underlying cash that we can pay out to investors. So if, if people ever sort of want to understand it in its simplest form, you know, I focus on the medical, but also then on the fact that it's a long-term cash provider. And that's that's ultimately, that's all we do. And, and the medical um, facilities that you're talking about, we would call them perhaps here doctor's surgeries, yeah. Um, or do you think they're a little more sophisticated than than that? There's a whole range. So um, so we've got mm. 576 buildings across the UK. Uh, and within that, we've got some which if you came and walked around them, you'd probably go, well, this feels like a hospital to me. Um, mm. So we've got one in Stratford-upon-Avon, for example, which is probably the same size as most large clinical um, acute hospitals. So it's an absolutely huge site three big practices it's got loads of uh, outpatient services there it's got diagnostics testing on site and you basically if you walked in there you think you're in a hospital so it would feel no different then if you walked into one of our other small buildings maybe um you know in, in the welsh valleys 
um, you would walk in and there would be literally six consulting rooms, two doctors based there. And you think, well, this looks feels like a really small, low key uh, type environment. But it, it's about horses for courses. So, you know, in rural locations, actually relatively small buildings can work perfectly well. Um, but obviously in urban locations, you know, larger centers that provide a broader range of, of services tend to work, tend to work better. So you've got a, you've got a complete cross section there in, in type, in types of buildings, but we are moving. We're very behind the curve. I mean, I don't know how many, how many of our buildings you've, you've ever had a chance to see, but, um, you know, generally speaking, the UK is, is appalling in terms of the quality of, of, of medical buildings. So, um, you know, a lot of them are still converted Victorian residential buildings. So I'm talking, you know, 100, 150 year old residential building that's been converted into a medical center. I, I just, it, it just, it just doesn't work because you can't do anything. Mm. Also, you've got, you've got access issues. So, you know, wheelchair access can often be a problem. The corridors are too narrow. Um, you often don't have lifts, um, but also then clinically, you mm. can't do any of the services that you would expect. So my, my GP is actually, I'm very lucky. I've just, just literally six months ago, moved into a brand new state of the art building, which is fantastic. But before that, I was in a really old building. And if you needed a blood test, you had to go to the hospital. You, you couldn't do that at the doctor's surgery, which is crazy because all the bureaucracy and cost of, of going to the hospital um, when you actually just want to walk down and see a doctor and, and have the test done locally. So there's a lot of benefit from having these more modern, uh, these more modern buildings. But the sad thing is, as a country, we don't have them yet. You know, we still have, you know, the, the majority of our buildings are completely unfit and unsuitable, unfortunately. So there's a, there's a big investment required. Uh, and at some point, you know, the NHS is going to have to start uh, allocating more funds to that. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that uh, specific area shortly, but just in relation to the as-is portfolio in terms of maybe, again, you mentioned cash flow. Could, could yeah. you, you know, elaborate on the cash flow in terms of the, the nature of the duration, um, yeah. the, the, the tenants who, you know, yeah. is the tenant the, the doctor or is it the NHS? I think I know the answer, but yeah. for the benefit. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's really interesting. It's a, it's a really unusual structure. So, so essentially, you know, um, it, it's a historical thing. So it goes back to 1948. So in 1948, all the doctors were private and the Labour mm. government created this thing called the NHS. And they wanted all these private doctors to join this newly created National Health Service. So what they did was said, look, to make it worth your while, if you join, we'll give you a pension government pension we'll give you um we'll, we'll we'll pay your salary but we'll let you be treated as self-employed so you pay less tax and the other thing is we'll cover all of your property costs so all of your property costs we will cover so as a result of that you know with 72 years on you know that structure is still there so the doctors themselves sign the lease but under law they are entitled to have that rent reimbursed by the government so effectively the doctors don't pay the property costs the 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 nhs does um, but they still um yeah, but, but they can often own that, own that building or or someone like assurer can own that building so you have a lease for the doctor but effectively the bills paid by the nhs so it's a very unusual structure um, but it works incredibly well uh, it means that in our 17 year history we've never had a bad debt so it's a very secure underlying cash flow. And I guess the other good thing is it's very long term. So because doctors' surgeries have to be where the patients are, um, and you often, you know, if you've got a, a high density of, of um, a high requirement for health, it doesn't necessarily mean it's in an affluent area. It could be in a, in a challenged area. So in that scenario, if you wanted to sure to build your brand new building in an area of, of sort of high economic deprivation, 
Well, we can't do that unless you make it worth our while. And and the way the NHS makes that work is by giving us a 21-year lease. So we have a 21-year lease on all of our on all of our new buildings. Uh, so right now, the whole portfolio, 576 buildings, we've got 11 and a half years on our leases. So that's where you get the long-term uh, bit from. And then the bad debt side, of, as I've already mentioned, without government funding, that gives you the security. Mm-hmm. So those are the two most important things, really. So the long-term element, and the secure element from the government funding. Yeah, it's a it's a fantastic cash flow. It's um, certainly one of the more interesting uh, ones we've seen. But um, again, with eleven years left, when do you start to worry about what are the doctors going to do on expiry? When does this become a different conversation? With, yeah. Rather than just the rents but entering into discussions about renewing the leases or finding them other solutions yeah so uh, well the, the simple answer is we start worrying at the start so obviously on a brand new building that we're building from scratch then we're very confident that that, that 21 years is rock solid and actually we've got a really high confidence that we'll get 42 years because the quality of the buildings is so poor a 20 year old building is actually pretty new by nhs standards so the chances of them being funded to go somewhere else is almost nil. So you, you, right. when you build one, you know you've got 42 years sort of guaranteed. But if we were to buy a building, which is often you know, a big part of our, our growth strategy, yeah, that's, we, we start thinking straight away, you know, what's the likelihood? So we do a massive amount of analysis on, on the likelihood of that lease renewing. So, so this morning, for example, you know, after this call, we've got an investment committee. I've been through the papers. Um, you know, we've got five deals that we're looking at. The number one agenda item for each of those deals is the likelihood of that renewing at the end of the lease. So we're analyzing all the data that we've got. So the numbers of patients, the range mm-hmm. of services, you know, what's its ranking in the area. So we, we put it, we plot everything on a map and look at where all the other practices are. So we're constantly looking and assessing, well, okay, is our building one of the weaker ones? Because if it is, that could be a challenge for us because a weaker building uh, or weaker practice that was underperforming potentially at expiry, then we, you know, we might we might end up with a vacant building, which is the worst case scenario for us. So it's the answer is it's, it's we're constantly monitoring it, uh, we're constantly looking at it, um, and we're also looking at trying to encourage the doctors to renew and extend those leases all the time as well. So um, that's something we're, we're looking at. But if you get to, ironically, if you get down to about three years on the lease you can have a really strong high degree of confidence that you'll get a renewal because it takes more than three years to get approval to move with the NHS. So you know effectively they're not going to have anywhere else to go. So you have this ironic situation that actually really short leases are very attractive because you know they can't go anywhere. Uh, but other than that, we're looking all the time and, and looking at what you know whether we can extend the leases. Um, so, and actually, really, you know, it's really interesting that we'll, I'm sure we'll come on and, and talk about um, sustainability mm-hmm. later. But you know, we yeah. are just launching our plans there, and we are having fantastic success. Very early days, but fantastic mm-hmm. success at extending leases in return for making some sustainability improvements, which for us is mm-hmm. a complete win-win. So that's a, you know, yeah. so that's something we're very much looking at. But I'm sure we'll we'll talk about that later. Absolutely. So then, then when you're looking at deploying capital, um, you know, how do you weigh up acquisitions mm. in terms of existing properties versus development? Is is that a uh, an easy decision, or is it the, the the lack of development is hard to get those deals in the first place? So most of your deals are through, in fact, through through acquisitions of existing properties. Yeah. So if you, I mean, if we if we look at the allocation of capital, we've got three ways we could spend the money. We can improve our existing buildings, we can build brand new ones, or we can acquire. So very simply, and there's a simple hierarchy. So improve 
develop, in, uh, acquire is is, a, is the hierarchy. So improve is the best return on capital because you already own the land. Um, you effectively you build a small extension, you rentalize that, and you get a you get it out. Outsize is probably the wrong word, but you get a you get a, a higher level of return for that for that level of investment. Development because we um, we do a lot of it ourselves, we do a lot of in-house management. Uh, we can capture uh, an improved margin from from that work, but actually from a development perspective, it's very low risk. So you are um, you're working with a with an entity where you've got a, a guaranteed government lease signed up before you start, so you've got 21 years guaranteed. You don't buy the land or commit material costs until you've got agreement. So you wait until you've got all the agreement before you make any significant investment. And you operate fixed price contracts. And you're building relatively simple buildings. So that's very, very uh, attractive. And you can typically get about, you can typically pick up 100 basis points on the yield. So you can go from a, a low 4% on an acquisition to a low 5% on a development. So that's that's really Attractive uh, and, and good good margin for us because of the level of risk. Mm-hmm. And then acquisition is the is the is the keenest, uh, but equally mm-hmm. it's the most immediate. Um, and obviously you get an instant return on your cash. Uh, and obviously we're constantly appraising the likely returns from that over the lifetime of an asset. So um, and because we take such a long term view, um, yeah, we we've got real confidence in the long term prospects for the sector. So that that gives us the you know, confidence to continue growing across all three. So if you look at our you know, it's, we just had our results a few months ago. So if you look at what we did last year, we were a little bit heavy on the acquisitions. So we, you know, we did um, we did 119 million on on acquisitions, and we only did 16 million on developments, which is actually quite low. This year, yeah. we'll be much more. We'll be you know 50, 60, 70 million on developments, uh, and we've done 35 million of acquisitions in Q1. So hopefully, we'll we'll keep that level of momentum going. So we always like to see a spread, uh, but there is that hierarchy. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So on the interesting on the development side, um, you know, people hear the word development and think risk, but I think it's important to recognise you really only do a development when you've got the the lease effectively in place and the yeah. planning approval in place. So therefore, the risk is on the building side. Do you, do you see a lot of risk in that at the moment in terms of with um, you yeah. know the Brexit issues and labour access to labour and and also you know the HS the high speed rail and and the added pressure that's going to put on. On resources, is that an issue for you? Yeah, so I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. The, the the real area of risk we take is around the actual construction. So there's a, there's two. I guess there's two elements to that. One is there could be a little bit of a delay from when you sign the contract to when you actually start on site. So you might carry some price risk for about six months. So if prices move materially in that period, you could be a little bit exposed. But historically, that's never caused us any significant issues because there's always you know, always overs and unders. Um, and then the other thing is managing the actual construction. So that could go wrong. Uh, you could have a contractor that failed. Um, so we have had in the past, um, we've had two schemes uh, it's since I've been with the business, so I've been seven years. So it's seven years, we've had two schemes where the contractor failed on us and we had to step mm-hmm. in and take over the site. Mm-hmm. Um, but both, both were then completed a little bit late uh, but not materially extra costs. So tens of thousands of extra costs, not not hundreds of thousands. And there's no penalties on our on our contracts with the NHS. So there's no penalty on us for being late, other than foregoing the income. So we have we do monitor that, um, and we're particularly careful at the moment. We're obviously worrying as we come out of lockdown. There's a lot of construction starting to ramp up again. So some yeah. some companies that had difficulties with their cash flows, it's probably going to come out over the next few months. So we're very closely monitoring that. We're offering additional support to our contractors. So we've moved to fortnightly payments to help them 
um, and, we're, and we're keeping a very close eye and in regular dialogue with all of our contractor partners to make sure that we don't have any issues. I'm really glad to say so far, We've had no major concerns from um, from, from COVID-related issues. Uh, all our sites have obviously had to modify the way they work. So we've changed things so that it's socially distanced. Um, but generally, we've you know we've had um, almost no claims for additional costs on site. And all, all our sites are open. And we kept most of our sites open all the way through. So you know definitely some extra risk at the moment, but we're really closely monitoring it. And then in terms of bigger picture, you were saying about you know access to labor. I think you're right. Post Brexit, there might well be a shortage, um, a shortage of, of, of skilled workers. Um, I guess in some ways, the slowdown in activity, general economic activity, might give us a little bit of leeway there, uh, and yeah. give us a bit more time. The other good thing is we are we're not London focused, so that tends to be where you where you experience the biggest shortages, uh, because the really big contracts can suck out massive amounts of labour in one go. Because we're geographically spread, we're not as exposed. Uh, and then I guess the last thing I'd say is we are looking at um, modern methods of construction. So, you know, or, or, you know, people don't like to use the word modular, but, you know, we're looking at factory-based construction. Is this something that could be the future? I think right. it's really could be quite exciting. I mean, it's um, yeah. certainly on a sustainability metrics, they, they outperform, um, you know, the efficiencies, we could move faster. Um, you know, there's definitely some potential. The problem we have is we're not a McDonald's. You know, if we yeah. were a McDonald's and we were just producing 40 boxes, bang, and just put them out on site, fantastic. But we're not. Every one of our buildings is a little bit different. Um, so we are struggling to see that real, real benefit from 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 scale. But it's something we're really looking into, and that could be could be interesting. And that would definitely help with the skill shortages because you know the work would be done by less people with lower skills in a factory environment. I think it's also an important sort of thing to contextualise the, the average size of your properties. I think you know, is it what, how many have you got now? Five hundred and eighty. Yeah, yeah, roughly, yeah, yeah, five seven. And so the average size is in the region of five to ten million pounds. Is that? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So yeah, just just actually just under five million. Yeah. Just under five million. Yeah. And the average size development that you're doing, is it about the, about the same, same or are they about, slightly different? About no, but it's about yeah. the same. It's interesting. You'd think they would be bigger, but actually yeah. the, the, the bigger developments, um, there's been a bit of a slowdown on those. So the last right. time we did a 10 million pound plus development was probably four or five years ago. Uh, and the reason mm -hmm. for that is the larger ones tend to be the more radical schemes. So that's more people coming together. So politically, that's harder to get everyone to agree to because there's more moving parts and more people that you need to convince. So what we've found is some of those have moved a little slower recently. But interestingly, we're on site right now with a with a very large scheme, a ten million pound plus scheme in, in in Hereford, which is which is exactly that one of these you know agglomerations bringing practices together. So I think you might see that starting to pick up again. And what is the nature of? discussions with the NHS at the moment in terms of with again with Brexit it's, uh, mm. I'm talking do you think that the spending on the health system is going to accelerate as was suggested by um, the Brexiteers or is it you know going to be a, a bit of a struggle uh, always a struggle to get more money into the health system yeah uh, well 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 pre-covid um, there was already a, a extra money being allocated so they'd already announced an extra 22 and a half billion pounds for the NHS 
Um, and, you know, this is all pre, and they just announced a long-term plan, which which allocated additional funding um, for the next five years. And a lot of that was um, was going to come into primary care, which is our space, because our medical centers operate within within primary care, so i.e. not hospitals. Um, and um, that, that was going to get a disproportionate increase in funding. Now, all of that is a little bit up in the air at the moment because uh, obviously emergency funding is being allocated to deal with COVID. Um, and um, you know, we don't know exactly how the, those, those funding allocations will settle uh, as we emerge from, from the current situation. But I think the direction of travel is clear. I mean, you know, increased funding for healthcare, it's, it's obviously number one on everyone's priority list at the moment. Um, I think the government will announce additional funding again. So I think there will be more money in the system. And they are talking a lot about the importance of infrastructure. And obviously, health infrastructure is a really important part of that. So I think you will see that trend continuing, you know, more money going into the health system and more money going into primary care because they want to create lots of extra uh, beds in hospitals to treat, you know, treat COVID-related issues. So they, they need more emergency and acute beds. And it's all very well, Boris, saying, well, we're going to build more hospitals. But that takes five years. So... It's going to be irrelevant because if we'll, mm. we'll, the, the world will have been in a different place in five years. We won't need those beds anymore, or they'll need to be different beds. So mm. actually, the only way to, to, to help is to take services out of the hospital in the short term to create space, and they have to go somewhere. Right. And so they right. have to go into that. And I think the only way they can go, where they can go, is primary care. So I, I, I think it's highly likely that you'll see uh, more investment in the health system generally and more coming into primary care uh, over the next uh, you know, year, 18 months as part of the government's funding plans. But there's no specifics on that yet. So no. they've announced some extra that's money the, for some that's hospitals. The problem, isn't it? There's been, there hasn't been a lot yeah. of specifics on no. you know, There's been a big talk, but not a lot of specifics, right? And that's always the scary thing. So, you know, we, we are, we're at the end of now a four-year program to improve uh, primary care infrastructure. So the government announced four years ago that they were going to spend a billion pounds improving medical centers and building new ones and improvements. That, that, that money runs out in March, so there's six months left. And of that billion pounds, actually on the ground, we have delivered about 15, 20 million pounds worth of, 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 of capital that we've seen deployed. On, on our estate, and we're the second largest landlord in the country. So that money has not gone where it was promised. It's gone elsewhere. So uh, that's the danger, is the rhetoric and the reality on the ground. Sometimes do they do diverge. Yeah. I mean, you, I was going to try and leave it to the end, but it's pretty hard to avoid the sort of, dare I say, it, the elephant in the room. But on the COVID front, what, what's – I'd be curious about – the fact that you're sort of certainly towards the front end or the front lines mm. of, of, of the situation. So curious to hear what's the feedback you're getting from, from your tenants? Um, what, what, what are they um, telling you? And are you more concerned or more comfortable about the situation? Uh, well, from, from, a, from a purely business perspective, if you just think very simplistically, um, you know, we're collecting our rents as normal. Um, so, you know, we're not having any issues on that front. We're still delivering the services that we need to our tenants. We're still pushing on with our, our development program. We're still pushing on with our acquisition. So on, on, on a purely business cash flow perspective, um, no major concerns and everything continues as normal. In terms of the, the what's actually happening on the ground, it is quite a different situation. So our practices right now, um, if you were to walk into every one of our 576 practices now, you would not find anyone in, in the waiting rooms, for example. 
So whereas six months ago, they had all been full Monday morning, absolutely packed with people coming in with with issues they've picked you know from a hangover from the weekend so you know colds etc you'd be ab- they'd be absolutely full everyone and there's not a single person in any of those buildings right now so the way they're operating is almost is almost exclusively remote so it's telephone consultations it's video consultations and you come in by exception only so yeah okay if you had an issue they'd, they'd ring you up and say right andrew you can come in but you can only come in at 10 30 arrive at the practice, call us from the car park, someone will come, meet you in the car park, escort you into the building, walk you to the doctor's room, wait for you, and then walk you straight out again. That's how they're operating. So it's very it's 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 very different. And there's a so there's a lot less physical consultations happening at the moment. Now that's not sustainable. You know, we are not we're not dealing with the normal normal treatments. So it, it does have to go back to a more normal way of functioning. Um, but that's going to be a very gradual process. So our, I mean, our tenants are finding that they're working differently. So they're doing more remote, they're doing more by telephone, but they're just as busy as they ever were, but they're just working in a different way. Uh, and, and things will slowly start to change and go back to the way it was before. Um, but it's, it's going to be a gradual process. So are, they, are, the, are the doctors and the health professionals still going into your surgeries or are Gen- they doing... Yeah, no, generally speaking, they are. So so generally, I mean, at the start, quite a few people stayed out and stayed from and worked from home. And then this is just a bit of a generalization here, but, but talking to our tenants, most people have found they prefer working in an environment where they've got other clinicians and, and professionals around them, so colleagues around them. So, you know, you're having a consultation with someone and they've got they've got an issue, maybe it's a heart issue or whatever. You, you then you you can you can then just you've got three or four other doctors in the, in the building that you can just double check look I've just had a call with someone they had this I told them that it was going to be you know to give them this drug or that what do you think was that the right you, know, you can just bounce ideas off you can't do that in your bedroom so yeah. I, I, remote consultations have a place and not and people doing you know filling in out of hours etc and doing some shifts from home definitely has a place but generally speaking the staff are on site both admin so and doctors. Admin and doctors, right? So, look, I'm sure they're under a fair bit of uh, pressure at the moment. I was quite astonished um, uh, when I was there just how little time the the doctors actually are able to give patients. I think it's it's literally like seven minutes or something. Yeah, yeah, Uh, it's 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 ten minutes in total, but it's ten it's ten minutes, and that but that's the whole time that that person is allowed. So if you you know, so that's the the time for them walking from the from the from the waiting room to your room, coming in, sitting down, getting the so actually proper face to face time is often more like seven or eight minutes. Yeah. So. As I say, I know they're, they're very busy people, but again, anecdotally, are you hearing anything from the doctors that they're more relaxed or they're more anxious about the current situation? Uh, well, I think they're, they're more relaxed about certain things. So I think they're, they're really pleased with how the technology stood up. A bit, a bit like, you know, we, I was saying that we've been, you know, not really... Uh, that impacted as a business. We've, we've worked from home effectively. I think they've been pleased with how easy it's been to um, uh, to deal with patients remotely. In most cases, they've um, they've completely relaxed all the rules about patient records, which has made a big difference. So historically, you know, patient records were only allowed to be held by your practice, not by anyone else. And they've now they're now sharing those across the system. So that's much more efficient. So certain things are working really well. You know, uh, online fulfillment of prescriptions and and follow up uh, appointments being done on the phone, all of that's working really well. Um, I think they are feeling the pressure uh, because the hospitals are actually pushing. You know, I said that the, the the business had to go somewhere, the service had to go somewhere. The hospitals are already pushing some of that work down. 
So that's really challenging for them. They're having extra work uh, pushed onto them. And there's a little bit of grumbling in the system about it because you know they, they feel they're already um, working quite hard and having extra services. And at some point, you know, we've got to we've got to take stock and so and well, what's the right approach? And then we've got to fund and resource appropriately. Whereas at the moment, it's all a bit uh, ad hoc, just reflecting the current situation. So it's a combination. And then I guess the other thing to flag is if you look at the referral rates um, from GPs into other services. So if you've got any illness in the UK, you go to the GP first. And then they refer you to the um, to the to the expert or the, the specialist. Those referral rates have collapsed. Right. So so as a country, we are storing up thousands of of un of un, unreported uh, issues where we haven't been referring people for for heart issues for for cancer mm-hmm. treatment um, for for underlying all these underlying conditions are not being addressed. So there's there is there's a bit of a wave coming um, that we're going to have to try and deal with because we've just not been referring people into the system. Hmm. Well, I'm just conscious of time and I want to cover a few more issues. Sure. I remember, you know, told by one management team many, many years ago, he said there was always a pattern with investment meetings. It'd be 45, 50 minutes talking about anything and everything but really everybody was just waiting for that last five to 10 minutes to talk about <laughs> what your earnings going to be. Yeah. I get the sense now that it's talking about important things, but I think everybody then tacks on ESG at the end. Yeah. So I'm curious about, are you seeing, you mentioned sustainability before. Is it, is it a genuine real benefit? Is it greenwashing? What's, you know, the, the, the pitch and, and what do you think, it's really meant to the business and, and and how meaningful it is going to be in the future. Yeah, well, we but well, we've just launched our our, our our new strategy, which is our six by six plan. So we've we, we're launching a social impact strategy, very ambitious. We want to be the UK's number one, and we want to impact six million people in six years through our activity. So we we are really setting our stall out, and we announced that with our results. And there are three elements to that one is you know continuing to invest and improve our buildings and, and, and improve the workspaces for our for our doctors and, and obviously therefore the clinical conditions for the patients. So that's one, one, one key part of it. The other key part is, is, is sustainability. Uh, and we're looking to, you were setting our stall out through um, to build the UK's first uh, um, zero carbon uh, medical center. We've already built one that runs with zero carbon but we didn't build it with zero carbon, so that's our that's the challenge that we've set ourselves. No one no one knows how to do this yet, so this is this is groundbreaking stuff. It's going to take yeah. us a while. We've set ourselves six years, but we'll do better than that. But we're you know we're, we're going to trial something this year that will get close, but I don't think we'll do it this year. But we're, we're pushing that hard, and then we're going to improve all our existing buildings. So that's where I came back to that you know um, the sort of synergy, if you like, where we're having really positive com- conversations with our tenants, where we are offering them sustainability grants to improve the energy performance of their buildings, reduce their bills, so improve their profits, but in return for an extension of the lease. And those those conversations are going down incredibly well. So that's going to that's going to really 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 positive for us, and that's going to help us uh, achieve our targets of, of of trying to improve the um, the sustainability of our, our existing stock. Because ultimately, it's the existing stock that matters. You know, everyone talks about the shiny it's, new builds all being fantastic, exactly. which is great, exactly. but it's meaningless. Yes. 
It's totally yes. meaningless if you don't yeah. tackle your existing stock. So we are absolutely starting with our uh, with our existing stock. And then the last side of, of the uh, initiative was our community action. So we've we created a, um, a charity called the Assure Community Fund, two and a half million pounds uh, donated to that over um, straight away, and that's to support health and wellness initiatives uh, associated with our with our practices and the population. So you know that we see those all those three elements as being really important. So for us. It's definitely up front and center um, for the team. You know, unfortunately, we've had to sort of launch this, you know, remotely. So with the team as well. But um, but no, we're getting we're, we're getting a, a real, really good buy-in from 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 the team uh, and from investors. I guess I, I think if I was to be honest, I would say it's probably a mixed picture. So um, I would say there's probably about a third of investors um, who really, really get it. Uh, and as soon as you start talking about it, they, they, they really believe that you're doing the right thing, but also they think it's the right thing for the future of the business, which is ultimately what it's all about. So there's a third, I think, that are completely on board. There's a third that's saying, okay, that's great. We think that's really good that you're doing that and that's really helpful and that's, that, that's really positive. And then there's a third that don't care at all. I mean, I'm being simplistic, but on our, it's not scientific, but we probably did, I don't know, 75 investor meetings this round and we probably had that split. You know, about a third, a third, a third, but it's moved on materially. I mean, I yeah. I can remember. I mean, I I I think you were the very first company that really started pressing us hard on. So, what are you really doing? With don't just tell me, you know, give me a headline. You know, tell me what are you really doing? And I think you were the first that really did that. And then BlackRock um, then gave us a real grilling at one of our investor meetings about it, and it was really interesting. They weren't interested in accreditations. And scores and what our Gresby score was, or whether we had a, you know, a rating of this or that. They they wanted to tell us what are you actually doing. Give me some examples, some like, and they really pressed us hard, and so they're really taking it seriously. So there's definitely a change of tone. Um, it's definitely the right thing. And then also you've got to remember what, what we do. You know, working with the NHS, you know, it's public sector. So. Um, you know, that by aligning ourselves as a you know a, a responsible business, it's got to be good for business in the long run as well. So it has to be. So uh, you know, so, it, it sorts. So you mentioned. I want to just go back though. You mentioned sustainability is more important to existing stock. Yeah. You've got eleven years left on a lease. Mm. You don't necessarily get a benefit if you spend money on sustainability measures on an existing cash or on an existing lease. Because the tenant doesn't typically pay you more, correct? Or no, there, have no, you been able to do something with No, them? we've not been able to rentalize any of those improvements. It's really, I, I, I mean, it's interesting if you look. So um, so Green Street, I don't know whether you take Green Street research, but it's it's very good if you if you do get access to it. If you, they've just done a study of, of, of this, and they, they've demonstrated that actually, um, generally speaking, greener buildings are not getting higher rents. So you, you're not getting the benefit for them. But interestingly, they said, but A, they're, they're going to be, you know, as they come to expiry, they're going to be more relevant. There's going to be less capex required at the end. And their argument, I think, was that, you, that the rents ultimately will follow. So, so if the building is going to be more valuable at the end of the lease, you know, you're going to be more, more attractive to find, um, to, fi to find a new tenant. It will start getting picked up uh, in higher rents down the line and, and ultimately the returns will be there. But right now, it's quite hard to see the economic benefit, but we're in a very fortunate position 
as I described, how we can extend the leases on our existing buildings through some sustainability investments. So we're we're effectively maybe bringing forward some of that capex, but we're we're pushing the leases back out to twenty years at the same time. So for us, that's a very um, it's, it's a very attractive uh, proposition. And we're not talking big numbers, by the way. We're talking we're talking tens of thousands of pounds. We, we you know we are we're talking about changing the lights. Mm. You know, LEDs, right. a bit of insulation, maybe maybe a new boiler. Don't don't get an impression that we're ripping out an office building and starting again. It's it's quite modest, the sort of thing that we're looking to right. do. All right. Um, then let, let's turn quickly to capital management. Um, curious to understand your attitude towards debt and leverage. Um, you know, it's obviously yeah. been something that you know we've just seen uh, a large UK. Uh, REIT once again collapse under the weight of, of excessive debt um, and, and obviously the UK REITs didn't do so well in the financial crisis. Uh, so again, what, what, how do you view debt? What's its role and, and what's the right level? Yeah, so I mean, we have we're really fortunate because we have those those long term secure cash flows. So mm-hmm. we 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 can we can have higher levels of debt. We can support them. Uh, when I joined the business, we had a sixty two percent loan to value ratio, mm-hmm. um, and it was manageable. It was tight, but it was manageable. But but we always had the view that we we felt that that a lower level was more appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, we didn't have the rating to support that, so we couldn't raise more equity. But now now we do. So you know you, you've highlighted the into failure. Um, you know we think ultimately our business is about providing you know stable and predictable returns to our investors. So actually, for me to to gear up for a year or two to give you a, a boost of returns for a year or two, but to bring in volatility into your return. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't see that as the right approach. So we're very much in the conservative camp. So expect our loan to value to be at the lower end. Now, some people think our current level, which is in the early 30s, is too high. I mean, some people now think gearing should be even up, but I, we definitely are fine in the 30s. There's no issue at all. Um, you know, we've got a we've got a, a development pipeline. You know, of, of you know, um, you know we'll, we'll spend sort of 80 million this year, so we can fund that easily. Uh, I think that's a very comfortable level. So we like to be a bit more cautious. We now have the investment grade rating, the A minus. Um, and I think um, expect us to, to to retain that conservative approach. Um, yeah, I've got a couple of investors that always give me a hard time mm-hmm. uh, because they think we should really we should, we could go up the risk curve a little right. bit and increase the returns. Right. And of course, we could. <laughs> I mean, I, we of course we could. I mean, we can borrow we 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 can borrow mm-hmm. we can borrow at two percent right now. So you know, if we ran at a fifty percent loan to value ratio, I you know I would generate you a really nice pickup in your earnings per mm-hmm. share, no question. But I, I just don't think that's the right thing over a five-year timeline. So we're going to play safe. We'll be conservative, uh, and, and that's where we'll. Well, be. you know our view on on the the situation, and you sort of alluded to it when you said, you know, we were at sixty-two percent. It was a bit tired. I can imagine the the, the decision-making process is somewhat um, coloured uh, or, or, or disfigured, shall I say, by having to worry about that number. Whereas today, you can be constructive about anything you do, knowing that your balance sheet is yeah. reasonably robust, and that's. Yeah. The mindset that we think great investors are in, where they they're not feeling that anxiety, they can make rational, aggressive decisions one way or another without having to, to, yeah. to you know fighting you know with the, with with the banks all the time. So um, I think we've made our feelings pretty clear uh, over the years, and and you guys have been terrific uh, yeah. at, at managing in that way. So yeah, thank you. Look, um, I, I just guess in closing, you know. Be curious to understand the way you look at Assure and 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 you think the market, you know, we've been as you say investors uh, since early two thousand fourteen. 
And, mm. you know, for the first three or four years it potted along and it did exactly what we thought it would do. When I say what we thought it would do in terms of, of course, we wanted to react to sooner rather than later, but we thought the market would need something to fully appreciate the quality of the cash flow, and, and thankfully that started to happen lately. But do you think do you think the market now understands the Assura story, or is it is it still something that you think is underappreciated? I think I think we're definitely um, much further on than we were. So you know we've been working very hard, as you know, to try and broaden the investor base to to get the case out mm-hmm. there. So I, I think the market does understand this a lot more uh, than it did. Um, we now have a decent amounts of research coverage, which we never had before. So you know we you know mainstream investors are aware. Could we do more? Yes, we could. Um, you know, we still don't have the, the the level of representation that we we think we should have from the US uh, and and other international investors. We're still a little bit UK big institution heavy, um, and we're not as well um, not as well embedded in the, um, the the wealth manager market as we would like either. So yeah, there's definitely more things we can do. Um, but yeah, you know, definitely the story is much much better understood uh, than it was. And actually, if you look at our performance this year. You know, if you look at 20, 2020 performance, then 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 clearly the market absolutely does get the story now. Uh, and you know, in terms of you know, in terms of the rating, in terms of the volumes, I don't know. You probably don't track that sort of thing, but you know, the volumes have been very high. Uh, so we've we've seen a high level of interest. So yeah, I, th- I think the market is, is is starting to get there. But we never. I think there is more we can do, though. You're right, um, and, and we do need to keep. You know, keep trying to push the story and, and broadening the base. Well, look, what we want you to focus on is just running the business properly. The investment market will look after mm-hmm. itself, quite frankly. Um, you know, it's uh, been around long enough that we've seen um, all sorts of people with different agendas. All we want you to do is to, um, you know, follow through on a, on a plan that you've articulated, I think, consistently over the years and um, delivered yep. on everything that we've wanted from you guys. And, and when the market wakes up and realises uh, one day that it, uh, it is uh, an attractive proposition, that's great. But as long as we know those underlying cash flows are are still pumping through. Um, that's, you know, frankly, all we can hope for and uh, and ask for. And, you know, again, I, I think on behalf of uh, our investors, you know, we've been invested in, as I say, the stock for nearly well over six years, almost seven years, I think. And and you guys have been really made yourselves accessible and and um, uh, and have told a consistent story and uh, and have been uh, fantastic. So as I say, on behalf of investors, and and by the way, I'm one of them. Um, we're very grateful <laughs> for for what you've done. Well, that's very kind. Thank you very much, and and we we've always appreciated the the openness from your side as well. So you know, it's been uh, been really uh, really helpful to to have a very open dialogue. Well, that's it. Our first podcast down. Hopefully, you've learned something, and my style uh, didn't put you to sleep, or maybe that's what you wanted. Regardless, I really appreciate the opportunity that we had to speak with Jonathan. And, um, and to hopefully share some great stories with you and we look forward to sharing some more. But of course, a quick note, this podcast is general in nature and does not take into account your personal objectives, financial situation or needs. So that's for the scripted part and we look forward to the next podcast. Until then, take care.